Second Peter chapter 2. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, and if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction and reduced them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, and if he, if he rescued righteous lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Let us pray. Lord, this morning as we again look to your word, we thank you, Father, for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, for what he has done uh, in behalf of those who would believe in him. Thank you for his obedient life, for him willingly and uh, with great with the ability to go to the cross and finish what we could have never done. And Lord, thank you, Lord, in his shed blood and in his resurrection, all those who believe in him have eternal life, forgiven of sin and made right with you. How great that is, Lord. Let those thoughts never leave our mind. But Lord, I pray as we live our Christian life, make us believers that walk in the fear of the Lord and understand how it is to love you and to serve you and to love your word and love your people. And, and I pray, Lord, that all of us would walk with you uh, every single day of our lives and want to do rightly and justly. And I pray this this morning in Christ's name. Amen. So we have already been um, looking at discerning the threats of false teachers to the church. Uh, in this next portion of Scripture, we already started examining the idea in this passage, which is the justice of God. Justice is part of God's character, where it says in Deuteronomy 32.4, the rock, his work is perfect, all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. So by way of definition, God's righteousness means that God always acts in accordance with what is right and is himself the final standard of what is right. If really you ask yourself or anyone else, how do you know the difference between what is right? Well, it's not what you think it is. It's not what uh, even teachers think it is or the, the society or culture thinks it is or the state or the country thinks it is. It's really what God thinks it is and knows it is because it is his character that reflects what is truly just and what is truly right. In fact, Scripture tells us in Psalm 89 that righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. That's what he builds everything upon. And then, of course, the passage that was read in Genesis 18.25, even in his judgments, as Abraham said, far be it from you that such uh, to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you, Abraham said, 
with the question, shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? Of course, the answer to that question is, yes, he does. Yes, he will always deal justly. In the past, in the present, in the future, God will always do justly. He will always act in righteousness. And so we moved into discerning the terrors awaiting false teachers. And in verse number 3 of chapter 2, God determines to fulfill his justice in the future. And how he, how he does that is by holding judgment upon those who, were, who will teach falsely and who are ungodly. In fact, this is the third time the judgment is mentioned in Second Peter, false teachers and uh, those who are ungodly. It's a warning against false teachers and the ungodly to beware because God's judgments are on the move. They are awake, as it says in verse 3, their judgment from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. And in this long conditional sentence, he is using this uh, conditional if uh, to, to show us that this is not a hypothetical situation. This is a real condition like in verse 4, if God did not spare the angels when they sinned. Verse 5, God did not spare the ancient world. God, verse 6, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And then, of course, verse 7, if he rescued Lot, righteous Lot. And then verse 9, which is the conclusion in the sense, because it's the if and the then, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of Judgment. So then the end of false teachers is absolutely certain. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, it is not asleep. False teachers may feel secure in their message of peace, peace, and think that they are being blessed by God, but of, of course, God uh, is not asleep on his throne. He will act decisively and quickly. In fact, the sentence has already been pronounced as far as God is concerned. That means that in this passage, we are we do understand there's an, an endemic problem with false teachers and false prophets, uh, especially in their end-time view of things or their eschatology and their ethics. They're all wrong. They're all in error. And because of these errors in thinking and teaching, false teachers are leading others down the path of destruction. They are blind guides. All it takes, remember, from Genesis is a little twist of the truth when Satan lied to Eve and just put a little doubt in her mind. Then he was able to lead her into temptation. So a little twist of the truth, like believe, believing that there will not be a future coming judgment, which really... The false teachers are believing that. And if one believes that and one follows that and acts on that truth or that false truth, then a person assumes that one's behavior will not be called into account in the end or at, at the eschaton, but it will. And that's where they're being lied to and being manipulated. So our passage will again demonstrate that there is plenty of historical precedent for God acting in judgment. And we saw the first one last week in verse number 4 to 8, that God demonstrates his justice in the past. 
all right, that there's three past judgment examples of the of wicked sinners. And we've already looked at fallen angels in verse 4, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned. And notice here that God has final authority to judge the spiritual realm, heavenly beings. We can't do that. No one could do that except God. So God judges fallen angels who sinned, and that is they rebelled against God's authority, and these angels perverted God's way and refused. They refused to be, uh, God refuses to spare them because of their wicked sin. And what did God do with these sinning angels? Verse number four, he cast them into hell. He committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. And this very word, he hurled them into Tartarus. It was recorded... Re, it was regarded by the Greeks as a place of torment and punishment below Hades, and that's where divine punishment was executed. And we know that hell was created for the devils and demons, and so they were cast there uh, into this dark place. So we mustn't forget that these fallen beings, demons, they work ceaselessly to hinder God's redemptive purposes. They, they're organized, and they do harbor a strong malice against God and his people. So the point of this first example is that God's wrath in the past is not a wrath that lingers. It does not slumber. God's judgment is, was swift when it did happen on this group of demons who violated the order of their being in order to commit wicked sins that corrupted the world of Noah's day. So our text says there is no help, there's no rescue provided to these demons, but only darkness in which they await final judgment. At the end of verse 4, they're reserved there for final judgment. They are held there in that glooming holding tank until the final decision of God, the final judgment of God. These demons, you notice, they're not partying there. They're not having fun there. They are being held by God in a very, uh, removed from the goodness and the mercy of God, and now they are experiencing the wrath of God until the final wrath of God. So this was a sinister plot of Satan to contaminate the human race by involving the birth process. So here is Satan trying to mimic God's plan to have Mary supernaturally become pregnant in order to bring about the incarnation of the Son of God. And he was trying to hinder that, in other words, in the future. And he was starting early to do that, to hinder that the Messiah would come, that the Son of God would come. So in this example... And each one following, you the reader and the hearers of this letter are to consider very seriously the judicial activity of God. If God acted in judgment in the past with such decisiveness, then he will act in judgment in the present and in the future. When wickedness reaches extreme proportions, God holds judgment. In fact, how great and powerful these angels are, and they cannot escape God's judgment. And how much less 
will mortal men escape. False teachers and the ungodly escape. They will not. So immediate judgment is only a preview of future judgment. The warnings of future judgments are all for the purpose to help keep the faithful, those who are following the Lord Jesus Christ, following God on the straight and narrow path. And it causes us to examine what we are following and who we are following. What are we believing? And how are we living? Are you following your own developed philosophy of life that is not based on sound biblical teaching? Or are you following some false teacher whose teaching is not grounded in the Word of God or truth? Or whoever or whatever else you may be following or someone may be following, the question is in Peter is, are you adding to your faith what is excellent? From verse chapter 1, what is knowledge, self-control, persevering, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love? Are you adding to those things? If you do, then you will be stable, right? You will be convinced that there's going to be an entrance into the kingdom of God because of that. So that's what it looks like if you are growing in the true knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, those things will be present in your life. So here's the admonition. Follow your own spun philosophy of life or follow someone else's not teaching the truth. It will only lead to destruction. Or you can turn to God, be rescued, and receive his salvation. That is always the message. The gospel's always the answer. Now, that is what we looked at. Now, let's move to the second example of God's justice being meted out on wicked sinners, and that's found in verse 5, and that's the ancient world in Noah's day. It says in verse 5, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. So, see, God sent a worldwide flood to kill ungodly mankind and the seeds of a demon human race. Again, the judgment is only a preview of the future judgment. This diabolical plot was overturned when God sent a universal flood to wipe out the contaminated seed which produced an abundance of ungodliness. The only ones who escaped this gross, abominable, and accursed practice was Noah and his family, where it says, actually, in Genesis chapter 6, if you care to turn there, it says in verse 11 through 13, Genesis 6, 11, now the earth was corrupt, in the sight of God. And the earth was filled with violence. Verse 12. God looked on the earth and behold it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Then God said to Noah. The end of all flesh has come before me. For the earth is filled with violence. Because of them. And behold I am about to destroy them with the earth. So who was Noah? 
Well, Noah was blessed by a harmonious relationship and communion with God. If you just move up a few verses in Genesis chapter 6, you'll see in verse number 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the records of the generation of Noah. And then notice what it says about him. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. See, that's very significant that that word righteousness is connected to this man who simply obeyed God and listened to him and lived and walked with him every day of his life. Even in the midst of all this corruption, even in the midst of all this unbelief, he still stayed faithful to what God said. So the length of time in which Noah labored and preached was long. God delayed the flood for 120 years while he was preaching for the very purpose of giving the world of people time to repent and believe Noah's message. In fact, Back in 1 Peter chapter 3, listen to what it says there in verse number 20. You can write that down. It says, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Now, just think of that for a minute. It wasn't the majority that was right. It was the minority that was right. And a lot of times people think today that, hey, listen, if a lot of people believe it, it must be true. But that is usually not the case. What is the case is that truth is only held by a few people. Uh, Just in this case, eight people. Eight people were brought through safely because they believed God. So Noah challenged the unrighteous generation in his day to repent and to put their trust in God and warn them if they continued in unbelief, divine judgment would overtake them. Again, in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, it says this, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, again, a preacher of righteousness, They're highlighting that in Scripture with seven others. And the reason why Noah's faith condemned the world is because what he was told by God, as yet unseen, came to be in every last detail to an unbelieving world. Here is the personal righteousness contrasted with the godlessness all around him. Genesis 7, 1 tells us, Then the Lord said to Noah, Noah, Enter the ark, you and all your household, and you alone I have seen to be, again, righteous before me in this time. So his faith condemned the people around him who disbelieved God and disregarded the warning for 120 years. Not one person responded to his faithful example and his righteous preaching. That's a sad story. It really is a sad story. But 1 Peter 3.20 tells us with, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Now, in this passage of Scripture, 
it uses the word world and did not spare the ancient world. Now, the, the term world does not only mean here creation, neither does it mean the life of the world in general, like uh, family relationships and business uh, and government and authorities and power, powers. What the Bible means specifically when it uses the term the world is the organization and the mind and outlook of mankind as it ignores God and does not recognize him and lives independent of him. It is the whole outlook upon life that is exclusive of God, the God of creation, and of the God of truth in the Bible. This is why our text says that in 2 Peter 2.5, and he did not spare the ancient world for that, that the world was full of terrible things. As it says in Genesis 6.5, then the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So God would not spare the ancient world. God destroyed it by the flood. God judged and condemned it in that way. The people of the ancient world didn't take the righteous preacher's word at heart or to heart. And listen to what Jesus says. Jesus says this in Matthew 24, verse 28 and 29. He says, for in those days before the flood, they were eating and they were drinking and marrying and given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will, it, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. So again, in that passage is the past reality of the judgment of God and looking forward to the future reality of the judgment of God when the Son of Man comes again to this earth. So the prospect of judgment does not make a serious impression on those thinking this life is all there is. And many times when people conclude that this life is all there is, what do they conclude? Let's eat, let's drink, let's be merry, right? Let's be merry. Let's just do those things. And um, that's really evil way of thinking. And that kind of thinking needs to be turned from before the, the ark is shut, even on that next generation in a metaphorical way. It's like when Peggy Lee in the 60s wrote a song that says, if that's all there is, then let's keep dancing. Let's break out the booze and have a ball if that's all there is. But the Lord promised us that I've come that they may have life and they may have life more abundantly. See, that is the truth for all those who come to believe in the Lord. So the water rose to the highest point, which was 27 feet above the highest mountain. How do we know that? Because Genesis tells us that the water prevailed more and more upon the earth so that all the high mountains everywhere under he the heavens were covered. 
and the water prevailed 15 cubits higher, and the mountains were covered. Now, you know, this morning I was saying that when I was 10, 15 years old, between that age, I would visit my grandmother, and I would hike to the top of the mountains there in, uh, by her home in Pennsylvania, and I would find fossils of leaves embedded in stone on the top of those mountains. And I would ask myself, how did unique things like these get there? Why are they here? What happened to produce images of leaves in stone? And I thought it had to be some powerful event, but I didn't know. I knew that diamonds were made deep in the earth under great pressure, but these fossils were laying on the top of the mountains. I didn't get an answer to that question or to to my questions until I was introduced to the Bible. And hence, the Bible said that there was a worldwide flood that covered the mountains. Ah, truth, right? It convinced me. It convinced me, and of course, the matter has been settled forevermore in my heart. And that's what truth usually does. It closes the door on everything else. It can't be any different. This is the way it's got to be. See, that, that's what's so intriguing about the truth. And you know what? When you hear the truth, it rings true in your heart. You know it is. Even if you can't pinpoint where, you know that's true. See, and that's how God truth, God's truth is. It just gets down to our heart. It squeezes us. So... I think that surely thousands of people fled to the mountains as the water rose higher and higher, thinking if they could get to higher ground, then the water would subside. But the waters did not subside. The people of the earth had 120 years to turn from their wicked ways to repent and to believe the words of the preacher of righteousness, and they did not, so that the young died those in their prime died, and the age died. You see how God's righteousness could not spare the ancient world. His character would not allow it to spare the world anymore, but he brought the flood upon the whole world of the ungodly. However, God's judgment was not quick. It was slow. But when it came, it was swift. And the ungodly were no longer safe. So the question to ask is, what was it that brought the world into such a state that the justice of God had to fall in such a catastrophic way? There's only one answer to that question. Mankind had departed had turned their backs on God, had fallen away from God and from his teaching. The teaching was there from Adam, and they fell away from it. Mankind started living according to their own ideas. And what's the result of that? Departure from God and his teachings and the consequence of lawlessness were the cause that led to the flood. The ancient world and the world in which we live right now 
ignores God and lives a life independent of him, a life that is based upon this world and this life only. This world and our country are ripe for judgment. Some say we already are under judgment, and that is probably true. So for what reason, you say, why God would allow that, even in our own time? Well, it's the same reasons. The reasons haven't changed. That God's justice, as it fell in the past, will fall in the future. Mankind has departed and has turned their backs on God and has fallen away from God and from his teaching. Mankind, again, has been living according to their own ideas, their own thoughts, their own imaginations, their own conclusions, without truth. So departure from God and his teachings and the consequences of lawlessness, which we see all around us, will be the cause for the justice of God to fall, which will lead to the earth finally being destroyed by fire. If you look in your text in 2 Peter, this is where it's all heading, in which false teachers deny and scoff at, in 2 Peter 3, in verse 5 through 7, it says, and when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was found or formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water, verse 7, but by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. So that's the end. So the fact remains that when mankind, any time that they are living, turns turns their back on God and his teaching, it ultimately leads to moral, political, social, and economic chaos. You cannot conclude any other way. It always leads there. Throw God out, and then anybody's idea is up for grabs. Now, as we're experiencing right now in our country, and just a couple weeks away from election. I thought maybe this would be a good place to say some things about that. So I'm kind of cutting my message here and just taking a little bit of a right turn, let's say, and giving you at least three things to consider when you vote. Because we are voting for hoping that righteousness lasts a little longer in our country and, and justice a little bit longer, right? before it all comes down, crumbling around us. So what are you to look for in a presidential candidate? Well, here's the first thing. A presidential candidate has to display in some sense of what it is to be just. As it says in 2 Samuel 23.3, the God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spoke to me, He who rules over men righteously. So, are they working 
on behalf of the people for their good? Or are they just serving their own little group or advancing their own careers or padding their own pockets? It was David Platt who said doing justice means addressing laws, regulations, structures, and systems to better help especially those in need at the bottom rung. They're the ones who are going to feel the brunt of when there's no justice or righteousness in a country. So justice and fairness for all people should be one of the characteristics of the man or person who will be in the White House. You know, the third or the fourth panels on the Jefferson Memorial says this. The third panel says this, written by Jefferson. He said, God, who gives us liberty, gave us, or gives us life, gives us liberty. Can the liberties of a nation be secure when we have removed a conviction that these liberties are a gift from God. Indeed, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just and his justice cannot sleep. That is Thomas Jefferson who wrote that. So Jefferson showed concern that future generations might not see liberties as a gift from God and that such belief might invoke the wrath of God upon a nation. He was right about that. He was right about that. Also, there must be a sense in a president of a high calling, of a noble and accountable calling. It sure is helpful to know that somebody who's ruling a country knows that God is watching, that they are accountable to God. As it says in Romans 13, 1, Every person is to be subject to the governing, the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. And then again, in 2 Samuel, the rest of the verse, chapter 23, verse 3 says, The God of Israel said, The rock of Israel spoke to me, He who rules over men righteously, who rules in the fear of God. Boy, let's pray that our leaders would have the fear of God that the fear of God would be real to them, that they would have a sense that someday they have to give an account on how they ruled in a nation. We have to pray for that. If they have a darkened mind, though, if they have rejected God and ignored him, they will not deal justly. They will not deal justly, especially on the matters of the major issues of our culture, the abortion issue. One million babies a year are killed in the United States. And now they have a late-term abortions. How heinous is that? How, wicked, how could even that come to the table? Whoever wrote that should say, put it right in the trash bag, says, this is not something we're going to do here. But it's now something that is actually implemented. See, God created all human beings in his image. All human beings are totally human right from fertilization. Also, marriage. The family is under attack in a huge way in our country. Divorce is on the rise. One-parent families. 
child abuse, juvenile crime, child trafficking, kiddie porn, homosexuality, same-sex union, suicide on the rise. See, marriage needs to be held in high esteem once again at the highest levels of our country. The homosexuality issue is a huge issue, which I was gonna, I'm going to address next time I'm in this passage. The LGBTQ community is supported. Their lifestyle is supported as normal, a normal alternative to living. It is not, it never will be, it is unnatural. That's what the Bible says. What about the gender issue? God made only two types of, of human beings. He made a man, a male, and he made a female, period. Right? That's the only way everything is going get, to get propagated, right? And the world's going to be populated. Any other way, it's not going to happen, except by artificial means, of course. What about climate change? Brethren, we live on a disposable planet. Mark that down. We are to be good stewards of what God has given us on this planet. Don't get me wrong. But we cannot save the planet. It tells us in Genesis 8.22, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease until God decides it's not going to go on any longer. So when our political leaders tell us the earth will be destroyed in 12 years, they are lying to us. Unless we implement some Green New Deal, we know that that is not the truth. In fact, 2 Peter 3.10 tells us this, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. See, this is where a darkened mind leads. It leads to what the catchphrase is these days is democratic socialism. But what they don't tell you is the goal of democratic socialism is to have full control over your life. That the government is, is your watchdog, tells you what to do, where to go, what to eat, what to buy, what to give to them. A German philosopher named G.W.F. Hegel, who was a young man in Europe at the time, of the, the time of the Constitution was being framed, he penned two statements that today's liberal Democrats would fully embrace. And this is what he said. He said, the state, is the march of God through the world. Its ground is the power of reason realizing, its, realizing it as will. He went on to say we must worship the state as the manifestation of the divine on earth. So Hegel saw the state or government as the replacement of God on earth. Any political leader ascribing to the concept of something like that, which they are definitely thinking about in a big way in our country. Who's going to be the ones in the crosshairs when that happens? Well, they won't be 
a friend to Christians, I'll tell you that. They will be our foe. And they will come and they will silence what the church is supposed to be doing and in telling the truth because the truth always exposes them. And they'll not have that. They'll not have that. A second thing to consider when you vote is the president, the presidential candidate has to understand the role of government. Vote for those who want to maintain law and order. That is the main role of government. Government, when it gets too big, it wants to control everything. Government was never meant to get too big. See, government was meant to punish evildoers, like it says in 1 Peter 2.14, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers. And then Romans 13.13 says, For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Even the government should exercise their prerogative to punish serious crimes by capital punishment, by due process. Like Genesis 9, verse 6 says, Whoever sheds man's blood, by man's blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, he made man. And then Romans 13, 4, For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. See, we don't want a leader who's going to look away and let violent criminals do whatever they want and then let them out of prison. We, we want righteous judges who are going to judge righteously and persecute those who break the law. For what reason? For the benefit of all of us. For the benefit of the survival of any people and any country. So we need to look to a leader who understands that that's their main job, to keep us safe and protected, to take care of those who do evil, so those who do good can continue to do good and take care of the things that we ought to take care of. And then the third thing, a presidential candidate ought, ought to want to defend our freedoms. Vote for those who want to protect your freedoms. The First Amendment is first for a reason. When free speech is taken away and censored, then the disintegration of the rest of the amendments is not far behind. We have enjoyed having freedom. We have enjoyed people come to this country because we're free. Because the government's not controlling us as of yet. We're free to worship as we please. We're free to exercise our faith, including the preaching of the gospel, meeting together to hear the word of God. We're free to do that. And don't you want to continue to do that? You should want to continue to do that. But they want to, they want to stop our freedoms Certain groups do. In fact, new media platforms like Facebook, Apple, Comcast, AT&T, 
and Google have adopted policies to censor lawful viewpoints expressing Christian views and controversial ideas as hot buttons. And some platforms have already started to use those policies to remove orthodox Christian viewpoints and considering them offensive and too controversial for the masses. See, that's what they do with truth. They want to squash it. But remember, when we were voting, voting should not be just for you, but it should be for our children. And it should be also for the next generation. We're voting for them. The young people in our country are under tremendous strain. I often say to myself, I am so glad I'm not a young person today. I mean, they are under financial pressure. They graduate from college and they have this huge debt. They go buy a car and it's $30,000. They go to a house, buy a house, and it's like an extreme amount of money too. Everywhere they go, it seems like they can't get ahead and nobody's helping them. See, we're voting for them. We're voting for our kids and our grandkids. That's who we're voting for. My father used to be a Roosevelt Democrat. When, we, when my father became a Christian, my father and I always had political conversations. It seems like religion and politics were all, always in the conversation, maybe the same in your family too. But nonetheless, uh, he was a Roosevelt Democrat, and he, he said to me one day, you know what, I'm not voting that way anymore. He, that was the year he voted for President Reagan, who was a Republican. And um, he, I said, well, why not? He says, because they're not serving the people anymore. They're not serving the people anymore. They don't have our interest in mind anymore, and so I'm not voting that way anymore. So we're, we're only one vote away from waking up one day and living in a country very different than we knew before. See, that's why this election is more important than anyone in my lifetime. So you and I have before us less than stellar candidates. But if you do your homework and get informed and not by CNN and MSNBC or ABC or any of those news organizations that are out there because they're all controlled by big business and they're already squashing truth to get to the people so they can get somebody in that they want. So Christians in America should be especially grateful that they have a country that allows them the opportunity to worship as they please. It has been well said, eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. Let's not take it for granted. If you do not pray for our country, and we ought to, if you do not make it a better place, if you do not obey its laws, if you, in the least, do not exercise your right to vote, then you are joining the hand, you are joining hands with those who are seeking its overthrow. I want, I love our country. I've been in the service, I serve this country. I know what this country is about uh, when it comes to power. 
But I know that we want to use our power to keep peace, not to have wars, not to provoke violence, not to have chaos, but to have peace. So we can go on and continue to grow in the Lord, continue to preach the gospel, continue to establish the church. That's what we want most of all. That should be our goal as God's people. So why is God holding judgment? This is the reason why. Departure from God. Departure from his teaching. And the consequence of that is lawlessness. And lawlessness will be the cause of the justice of God falling on any nation. You know, Lord, help us. Lord, help us. Let's pray. Our gracious Lord, the temptation to live for the moment is always present. It is difficult. It is difficult, Lord, to refrain from doing that which benefits ourselves and hurts the integrity of our government. Lord, President Trump and his administration are subject to enormous, enormous pressures from those who desire, desire is only for self-interest. Their numbers and influence can be seductive and overwhelming. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would help this administration pursue integrity, protect them from moving in any direction that is not consistent with the definition of justice that, is, that your word reveals. We know, Lord, that there is no one like you and your magnificent demonstration of fairness. We are humbled to know that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ once and for all satisfied your righteous standard by dying in the place of those who would believe in you. Instead of receiving your wrath, all those who trust in you have your mercy and love. Thank you, Lord, for that. May all that, though, may all that you have conveyed to us regarding integrity be understood and applied by us and those who are our presidents. Thank you for our country. Continue to work in it, Lord. So you give us more time. Be merciful to us. All this we pray this morning in the name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Stand together as we sing and uh, put your hands together too if you're rhythmically inclined to the song. Praise the Lord together. From the rising. From the rising of the sun to the ending of the day, one name alone be praised. Every nation, tribe, and tongue, all creation lifting up. Your name alone we 
Jesus, you have rescued us. You are good and you are just. One name alone we praise. From the heights. From the heights and from the depths. Every heart with every breath. Your name alone we strange and divine, I can sing, all is mine, yet not I, but Christ in me. And through these tumultuous times, um, what a joy and refreshment to remember that uh, God, through Jesus, has provided all for us. And in fact, um, all of creation belongs to the children of God. Um, and, uh, you know, Jesus owns it all, but then he turns around and gives it to us. And in that day, we'll fully realize that ownership. But even now, it's something we can think about. Um, and of course, it's because of Christ. So let's sing this new song. What gift of grace is Jesus, my Redeemer. There is no more for heaven now to give. He is my joy, my righteousness and freedom, my steadfast love, my deep and boundless peace. To this I hold, my hope is only Jesus. 
how strange and divine I can sing all is mine yet not I but through Christ in me the night is dark but I am not forsaken for by my side the Savior he will stay I labor on in weakness and rejoicing for in my need his power is displayed to this I hold my Savior will defend me through the deepest valley he will lead. Oh, the night has been won, and I shall overcome, yet not I, but through Christ in me. I dread, I know I am forgiven. The future sure, the price it has been paid. For Jesus fled and suffered for my pardon, and he was raised to overthrow the grave. To this I hold my sin has been defeated Jesus now and never is my plea oh the chains are released I can sing I am free yet not I but through Christ in me every breath with every breath I long to follow Jesus for he has said that he will bring me home and day by day I know he will renew me until I stand with joy before the throne to this I
yet not I, but through Christ in me. Yet not I, yet not I, but through Christ in me. pleasure to worship with you. It's a privilege to worship in the body together with you. And it was a joy to do that this morning. 